You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. The governor is expected to announce more efforts to relax the COVID-19 restrictions, possibly later today. We talked with him Friday afternoon after learning of a petition signed by more than 450 doctors, health professionals, and others that was delivered to his office last week. Here's Dr. Jonathan Dworkin, a clinical infectious disease physician at Queens, talking about their concerns. I was involved pretty early on in clinical care, including for patients that came in with COVID. So one of the things that happened early on in the process was there was a lot of difficulty getting patients tested. There was diagnostic uncertainty. There was obviously a lot of treatment uncertainty. So we, as a group of doctors, just began talking to each other. And uh, this letter is sort of the result of of having formed an informal working group of physicians. Some of us are infectious disease physicians. Some of us are primary care Some of us are public health epidemiology type people. Um, And we've been talking to each other about various COVID-related issues for weeks now. And uh, as the situation has improved, we've become increasingly concerned about, okay, what's the next step? What happens as Hawaii opens up? What happens as we allow more visitors to come into the islands? How can we make sure that the public health is protected and that the economic viability of the island is protected? So, you know, included in our group, it's mostly doctors, but we also have been uh, liaisoning with Sumner LaCroix who's an economist at UH, Um, and we've also spoken to uh, representatives of the nurses' union, uh, hospitality industry unions. We wanted to kind of create a group of people that are focused on both the economic and the public health issues and not pitting these things against each other. Well, I know there are factions in the community that don't believe the governor is moving fast enough, and there's also uh, another group that believes he's moving too fast, that we don't have things in place. So there's a bit of a dilemma there. Yeah, it's not an envious situation for the governor to be in, and I feel for him. Um, There's a narrative. I I don't want to say it's a media narrative because I don't think it's it's really the media's fault. I think it it comes from a a, a very uh, politically vocal subgroup. that, And the narrative goes something like this, you know, these doctors and epidemiology types, you know, they just want to control infection and get it down to zero. And, you know, if that happens, it's going to kill us economically. It's going to cause all these downstream effects. We just need to open up. We need to do this now. And, you know, the notion that you're going to have a sustainable, healthy economic recovery while you're allowing uncontrolled transmission of an infectious disease in the community is, is frankly risible. It, it doesn't make any sense. And, it's an experiment that's played out in other parts of the world already. And what we find is communities that don't control transmission have increased mortality because they have uncontrolled infection, and they take a very similar, if not greater, economic hit to the surrounding communities. So, you know, I, I reject that, that either-or way of phrasing it. I think we need to do both, and that's part of the purpose of forming the group that we did. What are you calling for exactly? There's a number of things in the letter. Some of it is reiterating positions that we staked out during an earlier letter, which we which we forwarded along to the governor's people several weeks ago. And, you know, the, the basic underpinning, I think, of any successful response is good public health. So we want, you know, testing, tracing, quarantine and isolation. And we mentioned those things again in our letter. What makes this one a little bit different is we're also focusing on the visitor policies in particular. And what we want is a system um, in place in the airports that actually works in identifying, you know, who's coming in infected. And the concern we have is that, you know, we're going to end up with a kind of airport theater where, where there's a symptom-based screening or temperature-based screening that's not actually effective. And there are a number of studies that have been published looking at that system and have shown that it's not effective. So we don't want 
airport theater. We want a system that's actually going to make it safer so that when people come into the islands, they feel safe and they know that they're actually safe. And we think that that's going to be better for the local population, but also better for the economy. And there have been calls for, you know, national testing, a national testing policy, and that doesn't appear to be happening. And so there are different groups, different lawmakers that have proposed different ideas about testing before people get on the planes. And, you know, what are the legal issues involved in that? Who should manage it? Should it be the airlines versus the state? How do we just open travel up safely? I I think there's a number of issues there, and there's a lot of technical things that need to be worked out. In our letter, we specifically talk about pre-travel test-based screening. So the idea would be that travelers would get a test taken before they board the airplane, and that everybody who's on that airplane would know that everybody else on the airplane has had a recent negative test. The technical issue that comes up is, okay, then we would need to validate that when they get to Hawaii. And for the system to be really effective, we would probably need a second test at some point after they land. And that would require, you know, an infrastructure investment in getting our testing capacity up ideally at the airport or possibly at the hotels. Those are details that need to be worked out, and we think it would probably take at least a few weeks to work them out. So what we would like to do is start that process now so that when our traveler numbers start to go up and we go from a couple hundred travelers to a couple thousand travelers, we have a system in place that's actually robust and that actually protects the state. A couple of Republican lawmakers have come up with a framework in order to open Hawaii safely, and you know they're concerned because they're saying, you know, the travel bubbles that we establish with places like Japan and New Zealand aren't going to be fail-proof if you've got people coming in from Vegas or, or, or other places where there could be potential hotspots. That's right. And, and the 14-day quarantine is sort of a backstop. So right now what we have is a 14-day quarantine, and, and if enforced reasonably well, which has been an issue, that is effective. The problem is it's a very heavy hand. To make everybody go through a 14-day quarantine really limits the number of people that are going to come. So a test-based strategy would be a way of exempting people from the quarantine. You know, we're not proposing that testing be required. We can't make people take a test. But what we can do is give them an exemption from a quarantine. And that would be the beauty of the system is that people could, could test come back and then not have to stay in a hotel room for 14 days. Once they're in, they're in. There may be some post-travel step. That's something we would have to work out the details of. As I mentioned, to be effective, a second test would be ideal. But but once you jump through the hoops, you're in and you can enjoy your vacation. Right. So that's the carrot. Correct. We'll drop the 14-day if you take the test. And what? Have them pay for it? The, The payment issue, I think, could be worked out. I mean, there's funding, disaster relief funding that could go into that. If someone is spending thousands of dollars on a vacation, it's not terribly unreasonable to have the person pay for it. We don't think that that should be an obstacle. I believe the lieutenant governor has some ideas about randomly testing at the airport. What do you think about that? I think it's a good first step. You know, I don't want to I don't want to shoot down any test based strategy. I think if it's only 20 percent or 30 percent, that's not likely to be effective. And again, I, I guess what I'm concerned about is that we'll end up in a situation where we have more of a PR strategy than an actual strategy. So, you know, if, if this is a first step towards a more comprehensive system, I think it would work. Um, but if it's, if, it's, if it's not leading towards anything, then we need to get it to the point where it is leading towards something, because it's already June, and we need to start putting this in place now. And critics of the health department have said that they're moving too slow. The Department of Health has a difficult job. There's a lot of talent in the state of Hawaii helping through the technical aspects of these problems. We have a number of really wonderful epidemiologists, some, some of them quite academic and world-renowned. There are people from the University of Hawaii and from outside the Department of Health that could help think through and work through this system and stand it up. 
But in order for that to happen, the state government would have to in- invite that help in. And, you know, I think the subtext to our letter is that's one of the things we're asking for is a more open, you know, transparent conversation in which there's collaboration from from inside the state government and from outside it. And is there anything you can share just as an infectious disease specialist there at Queens, you know, with what you've seen with the cases come through there? Yeah. um, What I can say is it was pretty hairy for a couple of weeks, and it definitely felt like a wave of cases. You know, it started out with uh, one or two, and then we were at four, and then we were at eight, and then we were in the teens. And as the case numbers went up, uh, a couple of units of the hospital began to fill up. Uh, We had some patients that were extremely sick. This is not a joke. This is a real disease. It makes people, you know, deathly ill. And fortunately, some of the measures that the governor put in place began to work. And just as quickly as we got hit, the wave began to recede. And now the task is to make sure that we never have a second wave, because I think that's what winning will look like. The whole purpose of the letter is to create some sunlight around these issues. We were concerned that a plan may be developed uh, without real public vetting or without feedback from from, uh, people in the epidemiology and infectious disease community. So, um, you know, this is an attempt to sort of say, hey, we're, we're aware that this is coming. And, and what's, what's the status of play? How can we help you set this up in a way that, that does not pit the economy against public health? Because we think that a successful response is going to be one that keeps infection rates down. And, um, you know, that's why we, we went out of our way to collaborate with people on the economic side of things, including, you know, the union reps and the uh, uh, economists at, at, at University of Hawaii. Uh, we really want a plan that, that takes everything into account. And we think that that's possible. And just after that interview with Dr. Jonathan Dworkin, an infectious disease physician at Queens, we talked to Governor David Ige about the petition. He says he's open to their ideas. You know, we are looking at uh, reopening uh, travel to the islands in a phased way. You know, we are focused on inter-island because, you know, the, the virus prevalence uh, in every county is about the same now. And so we feel comfortable that flying inter-island wouldn't be uh, spreading the virus or increasing the risk in any of the counties to a point that we wouldn't find it acceptable. Getting beyond Hawaii, then it gets tricky, right? I mean, we're focused uh, in a couple different ways. Uh, one is international because you know we have important international partners and looking to create transportation corridors to those communities with similar success in containing the virus. You know, in the U.S., there were 15,000 new uh, COVID uh, cases um, in the United States. Uh, In all of Japan, there were 33 yesterday. And in all of Korea, there was 35. Um, So, you know, we're focused on international destinations where we see the virus activity very low. And that uh, if we allow travel to those uh, areas uh, without quarantine, uh, we wouldn't be putting the public's health at risk. But what about this notion of testing passengers before they get on the plane? You know, certainly we're open and and, uh, we're considering that. You know, um, Kathy, the challenge is that there's really no standard of, you know, what a test looks like. I mean, you know, if if I said, yes, we want any, uh, everyone coming in from California to have had a negative COVID-19 test in the 72 hours preceding your departure, you know, how would we know if it's a legitimate test or if someone just didn't go to the internet and create a a certification form that says, yes, I took a COVID test and I'm uh, I'm negative. You know, how would we be able to judge whether the one that tested valid and accurate 
and more importantly, you know, separate uh, ones that were just made up and Xerox and ones that really were a real COVID test with a negative result. We did talk with Representative Bob McDermott and Gene Ward about the framework that they were proposing to mm-hmm. do that and to allow the airlines then to be in charge of checking the tests. And we did talk with Hawaiian Airlines about that. And, and you know, they're, they're, you know, a little reluctant to jump into it because they don't know if they can legally block someone from getting on the plane, you know, without the negative test. Sure. And, you know, and I know that representatives had said the FAA told them they could, but I haven't really seen that documentation. We, we keep trying to get a copy of it because if that is something that we can do, we certainly would want to uh, be able to consider that. Yeah, I think their idea was you get tested, maybe have the passenger pay the fee for the test so that when he comes to Honolulu, he or she comes to Honolulu, they can forego the 14-day quarantine. That is a possibility. You know, we're trying to explore how that might work. The challenge is how do you validate a real negative test versus someone just making up a form and it being signed. So what's your sense? Do you think you'll uh, make a decision soon about whether we lift the Trans-Pacific restrictions? So we're looking at uh, bringing visitors from outside of Hawaii in phases. You know, we view the inter-island lifting of the inter-island quarantine as allowing us to test the system. You know, so we are requiring a new health form to be completed by every traveler. We're going to ask them to give us their name and residence address. Um, what flight they're on and where they're going to, and then where they're staying in whatever the destination is, and then contact information so that we can talk with them or contact them via email so that uh, should they get uh, symptoms or should they become ill while they're traveling, uh, we would be able to provide them uh, health services as appropriate, test them as necessary, and then most importantly, you know, isolate them from uh, other travelers or residents Uh, to keep our community safe. You know, at one time, there was some discussion, I think, at the HEMA level about identifying hotels on each island. So if we needed to quarantine patients, that we could do that. Have those contracts been signed? Uh, Yes, we do. Uh, And so we do have um, isolation hotels in each of the counties where if we do get someone who is a visitor and COVID positive, then we do have a place to put them. We're trying to establish new standards uh, for the entire hospitality industry in the context of this new COVID-19 pandemic moving forward. So, you know, it's really acknowledging that there will have infectious diseases and really raise the bar about what's necessary. You know, it's very clear for us to continue to be the number one destination in the world. We have to up our game. And with the hotels, it means a couple things. You know, asking them to have an active education program about, you know, what a respectful and appropriate visitor would be doing, you know, besides the respecting our native Hawaiian culture and honoring our environment. Now we're expanding that to include monitoring their health if they begin to get ill, to get services. Part of that would be new standards for hotels, of visitor education, new sanitation and cleaning requirements, and then extending and making sure that they will be part of our network, our, our public health network, to educate their guests, to have them be part of the system and then to share the information should someone get sick. 
And one of those new procedures and policies has to be what happens if someone becomes positive for COVID-19 and whether they house them in their facility or they make arrangements with another facility, you know, it's, we don't care so much uh, either way, but they should have a responsibility for taking care of the individual should they end up being COVID positive. It's my understanding that Local 5, the Hotel Workers Union, and the Nurses Union has signed on to this petition. And I believe also the uh, University of Hawaii economists have weighed in uh, and signed the petition as well. If there's a way that we could have that be a requirement and then be able to validate, you know, I my concern as, as part of it is, you know, who's going to be responsible for making sure that the, the test are legitimate and done by a certified laboratory and that we can count on the results that those being tested and having a negative test are truly virus-free and um, won't be able to infect our community. So that paper's got to mean something. Yeah, it's got to mean something. Okay. I think that that's critical. And to see the petition sent in by the Queen's doctors, head to our website at hawaiipublicradio.org later today. We will hear more from our conversation with the governor later in this hour. But we should add that just this morning, Congressman Ed Case introduced a measure to authorize states to uh, impose additional restrictions on incoming passengers. Lots of uh, developments around this very important issue. And now it's time to take a look across the globe as India reopens a large part of its economy despite an ongoing surge in cases. And following weeks of little or no reported cases, New Zealand slowly begins to transition back to normal life. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Monday the 8th of June. I'm Janat Jalil. India reopens large parts of its economy despite a surge of confirmed cases. Life largely returns to normal in New Zealand and Spain's top football league is set to resume with virtual crowds. India has begun the most significant easing of coronavirus restrictions since the start of its lockdown, despite a surge in the number of infections. Confirmed cases of COVID-19 have now passed the quarter of a million mark. Today, in many parts of the country, restaurants, shopping malls and places of worship have been allowed to reopen. From Mumbai, Yukita Lamai reports. India is now among the top five countries in the world, ranked according to the number of COVID-19 cases. Hospitals in many of its cities are struggling to cope and patients are dying before they can get treated. But the leaders of several states in India believe a phased reopening is necessary for the economy and that people have to learn to live with the virus. Masks are mandatory in public places, restaurants are only allowed to seat up to half their capacity, and in religious places, offerings of food, touching idols and sprinkling holy water is banned. New Zealand has lifted almost all lockdown restrictions after health officials confirmed it had no more active coronavirus cases. There will be no limits on public gatherings such as sports events and social distancing will be encouraged but not required. However, borders will remain closed. The Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, said she did a little dance after hearing there were no more infections, but she warned against complacency. This freedom from restrictions relies so heavily on the ongoing role that our border controls will play in keeping the virus out. But we must remain mindful of the global situation, the harsh reality that the virus will be in our world for some time to come. 
South Africa is also continuing to ease its lockdown despite having the worst coronavirus outbreak on the continent with nearly 50,000 cases and almost 1,000 deaths. Some pupils returned to school this morning a week later than originally announced. Nomsa Maseko reports from Johannesburg. The reopening of schools was delayed by a week after it became clear that promises to disinfect schools, provide clean running water and personal protective equipment had not been fulfilled. Each student has been provided with two cloth masks, which are to be worn at all times. Basic Education Minister Angie Motsecha said that of the more than 23,000 schools, fewer than 600 were deemed not to be ready to receive students. The minister also assured trade unions representing teachers that the health and safety of pupils and teachers would not be compromised. Meanwhile, scientists around the globe are racing to find a vaccine, but there's been much debate about how to ensure it will reach everyone in the world who needs it. Well, one team in the UK says it won't be working with a major drug company and instead will make the details freely available so it can be manufactured everywhere. Professor Robin Shattuck is a vaccinologist leading the research at Imperial College London. I think it's clear that the global community will want a vaccine that's highly accessible and affordable. And so that's the approach that we've taken to give us the maximum flexibility. Now, of course, there are other models. AstraZeneca have said that they will make it royalty-free during the pandemic. So we don't want to say that this is the only approach. It's a new approach, and we think it gives us flexibility to work with a much wider range of manufacturers so that different regional centres will be able to produce the vaccine for their own needs and will have a degree of ownership. The mayor of the Russian capital, Moscow, has declared an end to over two months of mandatory self-isolation, which was introduced to slow the spread of COVID-19. The announcement comes two weeks ahead of a nationwide vote in Russia on constitutional reforms designed to allow Vladimir Putin to stay on as president. From Moscow, Sarah Rainsford reports. Moscow's mayor was once the voice of utmost caution on COVID-19. But Sergei Sabyanin has suddenly declared a victory over the virus, which he said was fading in the city slowly but surely. So he's announced that hairdressers can reopen on Tuesday, restaurant terraces from next week. And whilst face masks will remain obligatory in all public places, by June the 23rd, life otherwise should look almost normal again. All this is happening even though the infection rate in Moscow remains stubbornly high. And Spain's top-flight football competition, La Liga, will resume on Thursday and the stands won't appear empty. The league was suspended in March because of the pandemic. This week's game will be played behind closed doors, but the television broadcasts will use virtual images of stands complete with fans wearing the home club's colours and added fake crowd noise. This is a Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Bank of Hawaii Foundation, a proud sponsor of Hawaii Community Foundation's Hawaii Resilience Fund, providing assistance to those hardest hit by the COVID-19 crisis. BOH.com. 
Not that long ago, the news was dominated by the opioid crisis and how to identify and treat addiction. What resources do we have in the state? Are there ways to keep social distancing in place? Can telemedicine help? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk to an expert about the current ways to treat addiction and how to get help. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. Monthly online info sessions are available for the Distance EMBA and Master of HR. Scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Since its opening in 1889, Bishop Museum has had several directors and trustees, many of whom have streets in the Kalihi area named after them. The person we're interested in was born in 1880 in Urenui, New Zealand. Uh, this Bishop Museum director gained popularity for his research on the anthropology, origins, languages, and culture of Pacific people, as well as, as his expansion and enhancement of the museum's Pacific collections. Along with fame among the people of Hawaii and a Honolulu street etched in his name, he also won praise from his homeland when he was knighted in New Zealand in 1949. For today's quiz, can you tell us the name of this famed Polynesian researcher turned Bishop Museum director? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app at locationshawaii.com.
Honolulu Civil Beat's Reality Check today features a story about Kauai's police department's approach to the Black Lives Matter demonstrations. Reporter Brittany Light joins us today. Good morning, Brittany. How are things on Kauai? Good morning. Things on Kauai are, are pretty nice. Yeah. So uh, I, I was really um, intrigued. You know, you started out your story highlighting um, a police officer that was there uh, for those marches this weekend. Yeah, you know, we wanted to take a look at um, what these last two weeks have been like for police officers. Um, you know, there's been a lot of anti-police officer sentiment uh, boiling around the nation and here, too. Um, there's been a lot of calls for closer scrutiny of, of our officers in blue. And we just wanted to know kind of emotionally, psychologically, what has that been like? Uh, the story opens up with... Um, Captain Rod Green of the Kauai Police Department, um, and his sort of interesting predicament. He wanted to participate in uh, a large protest that happened in Lahui on Saturday, um, but it was a complicated decision for him. He is a Kauai police officer, and he's also a black man, and um, he he wasn't sure uh, where, uh, I guess he wasn't sure what the rhetoric of these protests would be. Um, if they would be calling for, you know, justice, for anti-racism, those are all things that he, he supports. Um, but he, you know, was a little nervous. Maybe they would be um, anti-police. Um, so the story kind of talks about how he grappled with the decision to participate in the protest, which he ultimately did. He was there on Saturday. Well, it was interesting because here uh, in Honolulu, I drove with the protesters, you know, as they marched up uh, Pi'ikoi Street and on Kapi'olani. And uh, as, uh, you know, we were along that route, I happened to see a Honolulu police officer who happens to be, you know, African-American. And I was struck by that, too, you know. And uh, not far from where he was, there was another officer. And at one point, I saw two protesters who were black, you know, go up to him, and they gave him a big bear hug. And that was such a powerful image for me watching that. So it was interesting to hear this story of this Kauai police captain. Yeah, Captain Green, who I spoke to, also talked with me quite a bit about, uh, you know, what to wear to the protest. Should he go in his KPD uniform um, or should he, you know, go in street clothes? And, And he talked with me at length about that. Um, actually, when we spoke uh, earlier in the week, he had kind of settled on, um, on on actually wearing his police uniform and, and going to the protest, um, you know, just, just to show people that he is a black police officer and that all police officers aren't the same and all protesters aren't the same. And, you know, he was talking to me a lot about how he wants people to be cautious about painting uh, all protesters or all police officers with one broad brushstroke. Um, You know, these are all individual people. There's good cops, bad cops, good protesters, you know, then there's rioters. Um, In the end, he ended up wearing his street clothes. I think it afforded him a little bit more anonymity. Um, He talked to me about how he he wanted to participate, but he didn't want people to be hyper-focused on on him as an officer um, being there. And you also highlighted um, the position of the police chief there on Kauai. Yes, uh, the uh, chief, uh, Todd Raybuck, he's uh, been with the department for about a year. Um, he actually previously served uh, for nearly 27 years uh, with the police department out in Las Vegas. And that department right now um, 
is suffering a devastating blow. One of the officers there was uh, shot in the head by a protester on the Vegas Strip last week. And uh, that's an officer that our uh, Kauai police chief knew. Um, So I talked with him quite a bit about how he's been grappling with that and just what he's been talking to his officers about. He said the main thing is he wants his officers to engage with the Kauai community, talk to uh, citizens about their concerns about systemic racism, um, and just kind of have an open dialogue. That is the way that we're going to get through this, he thinks. Yeah, I mean, that's just such a tragic story, that shooting in Vegas. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's it's just interesting to see then that dimension uh, with the Kauai police chief and what he's feeling and experiencing and, and what he's telling, you know, his officers here. Yeah, and, and all the officers I spoke to noted, you know, everything has been so peaceful here. Um, and so Hawaii uh, isn't really experiencing some of the ugly side of these protests Um with, you know, looting and looting of businesses and with, you know, destruction and and with more shootings, more violence. Um, So I think the officers were really supportive of people who wanted to protest whatever they were protesting, um, even if it was the police, as long as it was peaceful. Yes. And uh, uh, we uh, uh, were worried because there were lots of rumors circulating on Friday about, you know, outsiders coming in to agitate and that didn't materialize. So we're, we're glad for that. Thank you so much, Brittany. You're welcome. That was Civil Beat reporter Brittany Light with today's reality check. To read her story, go to civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dr. Vivian Tam, specializing in laser-assisted cataract surgery with Technus Symphony, a lens designed to enable patients to see clearly across the full range of vision from near to far. PacificVisionHawaii.com Join us this Tuesday for a special broadcast of Hawaii Youth Symphony's Winter 2019 Concert. It features the talents of young musicians across the state playing music from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Lord of the Rings, How to Train Your Dragon, and more. That's Tuesday at 8 p.m. on HPR2, your home for classical music. Sponsored by Masaki School of Music. Listeners let us know about what they thought about restarting travel and the economy. One listener criticized the state government's handling of the situation. Peter, via email, said, I believe that actions of the state government in continuing a quarantine, always moving the goalposts, are more detrimental at this point to the well-being of the economic recovery, specifically tourism, and therefore the mental and physical health of the Hawaii residents dependent on the tourism economy. I do find it very rational to have a trans uh, to have trans-Pacific travelers tested prior to traveling to Hawaii as a viable option versus a 14-day quarantine, which 
as all the tourism statistics would indicate that those visiting the state has an average stay time well below 14 days. Those visiting the state would certainly be willing to take tests as part of the protocol to visit Hawaii. Further, that as important as tourism is to the state, that the state still has not been able to develop procedures to accept trans-Pacific travelers. I fear that this continued delay is causing a higher rate of death rates, domestic violence, etc., compared to continuing this quarantine. Those in Hawaii that I communicate with are depressed, desperate, and with little hope based on the state government's failure to the economy of the state. In no way do I see the state following the data, statistics, and science of this virus since the outbreak. Uh, on the topic of reopening travel to the islands, we receive this suggestion from a caller. Hi, my name is Lindy, and I'm calling from Hilo. And I'm concerned about people coming to our state who are carrying COVID-19, but they don't have a fever. Dogs in France have been tested at a research veterinary school in Mason, Alfort, France, that showed a 95% success rate in sniffing out the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. We need these dogs at our airports and our port of entries. And we received this email from Allison on starting the economy. Hawaii's residents need transitional career support funds. The neighbor islands especially are highly dependent on tourism, which is the number one major industry. If it is not possible for tourism to make a strong comeback due to the lack of tourists, thousands of neighboring island residents will have to consider making a career change. This will be a massive workforce shift. Transitional career support funds would be a reservoir of funding which individuals seeking to make a career change could draw from to support continuing education, learning a trade, and paying for living expenses such as rent, food, medicine, gas, car payments, loan payments, and credit card payments. Uh, this will be particularly crucial for those who are unable or elect not to return to their old jobs, thus rendering them ineligible for unemployment compensation benefits. There will be many who return to work upon being called back, but find they are stifled and discouraged from standing around for hours on end with no customers. The disappointment and disillusionment of trying to get back to jobs and careers which are no longer anything like what they were before will be a catalyst to propel them to seek new ventures. If we can capitalize upon that uh, innovation by supporting the material needs of these individuals during their transition, our state will be so much better off. If you want to share your thoughts, call our Talkback line at 808-792-8217 or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. This is a conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now check in with astronomer Christopher Phillips and HBR's Dave Lawrence about some exciting new info on a Martian rover sent to monitor seismic activity on the Red Planet. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny and very troubled planet. And as usual, we turn to the expertise of Christopher Phillips. We've got him on the line right now, too. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. This week's Stargazers, look out for Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn in the southern morning sky. Also, don't forget that Venus is visible in the evening after sunset. 
The moon this week is passing through its full phase, and so stargazing for those faint objects will be rather difficult. Now, I understand you've got information about one of the many Mars-related projects, and in this instance, a lander, a stationary thing that's up there. Yeah, you remember a while back we covered the story of NASA's InSight lander and its mission to monitor seismic activity on the planet Mars. The lander touched down successfully and was able to perform a great deal of science. However, a subsurface drill, known as the mole, became stuck in the Martian soil and essentially became useless. NASA engineers have been trying to fix it ever since, and, well, they finally did it, but perhaps not in a way that you would have expected. How did they get the mole working again? Well, essentially they hit the mole with a shovel. That shovel being one of the rover's robotic arms. Wow. This freed up the mole and will now allow the lander to attempt drilling again. You could say it was Martian whack-a-mole. <laughs> and so it sounds like kind of a, a potential risky move. Is there anything they could have broken doing that? And explain sort of how they did it. Sounds fascinating. Well, they could have broken both the robot arm and the drill, but luckily everything was okay. This was actually a very delicate operation. Great care was needed to not damage both the mole or the arm, and now that it's free, it should be able to resume its critical mission. And refresh us on that mission. Well, the mole was designed to burrow beneath the surface of Mars and return data on the interior of the red planet. It's geology, composition, temperature, things like that. This will enable us to better understand the nature of Mars quakes and to determine if Mars is still geologically active. However, with winter approaching fast on the red planet, the mole is running out of time to get this job done for this year. Well, obviously, that's a cliffhanger, and we'll be waiting for an update on the mole and the mission to Mars. And it's Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week for Stargazer, which you can find at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Maui's Wailuku Civic Complex, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. Earlier in the show, we asked you to tell us the name of a well-known Bishop Museum director who is remembered for his major contributions to the scholarly research of the Pacific and its people. Knighted in 1949, he not only enjoyed fame among the people of Hawaii, but also received praise from the people of his homeland of New Zealand. You may even have driven on the Kalihi Roadway bearing his name. So who is this beloved director? Well, the answer is Sir Peter Peter H. Buck, who served from 1936 to 1951. He spent his tenure improving the Bishop Museum and had a long career researching the anthropology, languages, origins, and cultures of the Pacific people. The road sign, Peter Buck Street, is located right across Damien High School, and it's a visual reminder of the man and his contributions. And, you know, I didn't know the answer to that one, but uh, Larry from the Big Island knew it. So congratulations to you. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You know, we did get a chance to talk to Governor David E. Gay about the ongoing social upheaval triggered by the death of George Floyd. But we also pressed him about the testing issue 
and the tensions between some of his cabinet members and some senators as we all try to work on solutions to COVID-19. Last week, for the second time in a row, Mike McCartney, head of the Hawaii Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism, declined to allow his department staff to answer questions about an economic plan because of concerns about bullying. Here's the governor. I know that there is some concern about the tension between uh, some members of the Senate and some of your cabinet, in particular, uh, you know, Mike McCartney over at DBED. Your response to that? You know, we continue to work with the legislature. I I know that Mike has had uh, conversations with the Senate president uh, and others. You know, we want to assure that uh, we can have a thoughtful and respectful exchange you know, and um, there, there has been concern about hostile exchanges and, you know, employees being intimidated and threatened. And obviously that's not uh, a good uh, work environment for everybody. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we're committed to uh, ensuring that our, our employees are working in a, a hostile-free uh, work environment. Anything more on, on the testing uh, uh, end of that as far as, uh, you know, what you hope then to have in place before you lift the restrictions for Trans-Pacific travel? Clearly, I think we're in a good place right now. We've expanded testing capacity within the state of Hawaii to more than 5,000 samples being able to be run uh, every day. And that uh, begins to assure us that if we suspect people have been exposed, we can uh, test all of those who should be tested and get results uh, within 24 hours. And that's a critical part of our program to bring uh, visitors in. We continue to expand the contact tracing capability within the state, and that is a critical part. Everyone across the country uh, says that testing and contact tracing are the two um, most important skills. Uh, You know, and we're one of the only uh, states that have maintain um, contact tracing on every single case that has been uh, here in the islands. And, you know, we are initiating new training programs and we'll have more uh, contact tracers in anticipation of a spike. You know, and so what we're looking at, um, Kathy, is what are the conditions of the virus uh, in our most important market? And You know, we're wanting to see it uh, in the trending in the right direction, you know, reduction uh, in the number of cases and, you know, not having the virus count spiking in those communities that many of our visitors are coming from. Because we do know that the spread of the virus is related to travel. It's been more uh, local residents traveling uh, out of state and getting infected and bringing it back. Uh, But... You know, we also know that it is a risk to our community when people from out of state, especially in those communities where the virus is spreading wide in the community, that they're traveling to the island uh, and infecting others is a big concern we're trying to manage. I did talk to GM over at uh, Mauna Lani, and he was saying that they hope to open bookings like uh, August 1st and that he needs at least a month prep time to get his staff trained and get the property ready to start accepting guests. I I think another property said they were hoping to start booking in July. Any thoughts on that? Well, so we are working, uh, Catherine, you know, really to get a safe way for 
travelers from out of state to come back to our islands and enjoy it. And we are focused on those communities where the virus has been contained and the community spread of the virus is very low, similar to what we see here in the islands. And we feel comfortable in reestablishing travel from those communities to ours without the, the mandatory quarantine. Just anything in general, just about the Floyd case? You know, I think that all of us here in the islands were horrified by the tragic death of George Floyd. I mean, clearly, regardless of the circumstances, um, he did not deserve to die in that manner. I support everyone's First Amendment right to be able to express their anger, their disgust about um, the whole notion that our country has made promises to battle uh, discrimination and uh, unequal treatment of of the black community and uh, minorities in general. And we haven't made the progress that all of us would like to see in this country. You know, I'm proud of Hawaii because as a community of minorities, we learned a long time ago that when we work together, we can do great things. And the only way for us to make progress is for all of us to celebrate our diversity uh, and really commit to um, much, much broader goals and aspirations for our community. You know, we, we don't anticipate the rioting and violence that we've seen in other communities, but we also know that it's the outside agitators uh, that come and uh, escalate um, the violence and rioting, uh, irrespective of what the local community would want to see. So, you know... I am hopeful that our community will not let outsiders uh, come in and um, speak for us or uh, interrupt our commitment to be respectful and allow all voices to be heard. And that was part of a conversation we had with Governor David Ige Friday afternoon. And that wraps it up for us. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from Luke Meyer, administrator of the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.